0: Matthew chapter 24, we will actually begin in verse 42 as we look at the text. And our title today, I'm actually breaking from the series. I was planning last week to do a, a short message just kind of covering one of the parables here. And, uh, but time didn't allow for that and, and so we did something different which I think was better anyway. However, I kept getting this nudge to come back to this and maybe fill it out into a fuller sermon. And so that's what we're going to do today as we uh, look at God's Word. So we'll uh, be looking uh, at the text starting there. I'm not going to read the whole text at the beginning because it's about 50, 60 verses long, and we'll just read some parts of it as we work our way through. Let's pray as we go to God's Word. Heavenly Father, as we come to your Word, we're going to be examining what our Lord said regarding His return. I pray that in exploring this, that our hearts would be stirred as He intended them to be stirred. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. The title of the message is Ready or Not, Here I Come. And and a subtitle, if you will, or more of a sub theme that I'm going to be exploring in the midst of this is The Mystery of Grace and Deeds. And uh, there's a podcast I enjoy listening to. Uh, it's called The Next Big Idea. Uh, actually, PJ turned me on to it about a year and a half ago or something. And uh, I really enjoy it because it's uh, the, what they do is they go through some of the most recent books that have been released and in uh, the world of business and ideas and, and culture and, and that kind of thing. And they pick what they think are the best books. And they bring those authors in and they, they interview them. And back in February, they did an episode titled, Life is Short, the Upside of Death. Interesting, I thought. Um, The host, an atheist, opens uh, the episode by describing his conversation with his son when his son asked, Are you going to die? Will I? And he said, Yes, I, I am. You will too. His son, now curious as to what happens when we die, he goes on to explain to him, well, some people, like Grandpa, believe that you go to heaven if you are good, where you are reunited with everyone else who has died, where you will live forever. Do you believe that? his son asks. He then goes on um, to explain that he doesn't believe that, but there's nothing to fear, because just like before he was born, and he didn't feel any pain or know that he wasn't here, that that's how it would be when he died. But then he confesses, he makes an admission to the audience um, that it's not entirely true. He does fear death. He's no fan of death. He feels like, well, he'll still have some unfinished business to do. He recalls driving across the United States in the 1980s uh, when radio was still the thing. You may recall that, I'm not sure. And listening to local talk shows as he went through various towns. And one show, they were talking about death, and a caller captured his own uneasiness. He said, I'm 80 years old and likely to die fairly soon, but I'm not ready to leave the party. I'm not ready to leave the party. Readiness was about having squeezed all the juice out of life available in that man's thinking and in this host's thinking. If only I could squeeze all the juice there is out of life, then I'd be okay. But we can never squeeze all the juice out of life that is available. Today, people make bucket lists. You know, it's a massive project and disappointment or worse, anxiety. Only one of two results is, is possible. One, I don't complete the list before I die. Or two, I do complete the list and realize I should have had more on it. The focus is wrong. What, what is the goal of my life? What, what is important to do before I die? Is it just a party or an orange from which I must squeeze all the juice available to me? Is that life? And the answers to these questions is what our text is about. Matthew 25 plus the seven verses at the end of 24 have four parables, each dealing with the return of Christ. The parable of the faithful versus the foolish, or wicked as they're called in the parable, servants. The parable of the ten virgins. The parable of the talents, or as the NIV has, bags of gold. And if it can be called the parable, that of the sheep and goats. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You might be more familiar with that one. Each parable focuses on how we live now Rather than on what it will be like then. Everything said about Christ's return in these parables makes a claim on how we live today. Have you ever heard or maybe even tried the approach? I have, just to be you know, transparent with you. I've tried it. Um, to, to try the approach to evangelism that trains would-be, the would-be evangelist to ask the suspect... Um, If if you were to die today, and the Lord were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, how would you answer? And then by listening to how they answer, you supposedly determine whether or not they are saved, and how you would then approach that evangelism uh, encounter. For example, if one were to answer, I fed the hungry and gave drink to the thirsty. I welcomed the stranger in and clothed the naked. I visited the sick and those in prison. According to such training, we would assume that they are not saved. Because their focus was on what they did. Now, no one says that such a question will be asked when we meet Christ. You know, why should I let you in? But the implication is that how one answers that question reveals if they can be assured of salvation. Well, if we take Jesus seriously in Matthew 25 and certainly the end of 24, those descriptions about his return, then this could not be further from the truth. Those things would not help us understand whether somebody could be assured of salvation or not. All four of these parables set forth the role of both God's grace toward us and the requirement that our lives bear the fruit of that grace, or we might call deeds. These parables leave the mystery of grace and deeds just that, a mystery. And I think they need to remain a mystery. Luther's 95 theses, which were nailed to the doors of Wittenberg, are nuanced. I mean, there's 95 of them. That's going to create nuance. It wasn't a one or two question or statement kind of thing. Do you agree with or not agree with? There's 95. Most Protestants have reduced the discussion to a binary argument. Is it grace or works? When any discussion devolves into only binary options, this or that, they do far more to divide than to understand. One seeks not to understand their opponent in those kinds of discussions. They seek to categorize them so that they don't have to understand them. But Scripture pushes us away from such kind of thinking. Take the nature of Christ, for instance. We believe he is 100% God and 100% man, which by all human reason is impossible. But we still believe it. It requires the ability to get out of the binary of he's either God or man. We say he's both and he's all of both. Or how about the Trinity? We believe that there is one God and only one God. We believe that there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are all God. And if you think only in binary, you end up in a cult. I think the Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation had it wrong. They believed salvation is some sort of mixture between grace and works. That's how you achieved it. The Reformers thought it was all of grace. The Reformers were correct as far as that discussion goes, but we've missed the fact that the Reformers believed that it was 100% grace and that good deeds were absolutely essential. See thesis number three of the 95 theses. To be clear, good deeds are not meritorious, but they are essential. That requires nuance and the acceptance of mystery. We'll explore this mystery in these parables under three headings. I'm sorry, four headings. Faithful or foolish, lit or unlit, lavish or loath, sheep or goats. And if you didn't catch all that, it's okay. We're going to cover them as we go. So, faithful or foolish. When will the end of the age be? Hmm. Chapter 24 in Matthew's Gospel, the one that starts with all the signs and wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes. You know that one? It begins with a statement by Jesus as they're walking uh, around the temple and they can see the temple from where they are. And, 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 and he says, oh, by the way, you see, you see this massive building project, which in, Jew, in the Jewish mind, according to Jewish lore, it was impossible to destroy the temple. It was built that well, Herod's temple, specifically the one they were looking at. In fact, they would have equated it with the end of the world. It would only be destroyed if the world came to a complete end. That would be the only possible way it could occur. And so Jesus just makes the passing comment, Oh, do you see all of this? There's going to come a day when there'll not be one stone left upon the other. Well, that had their attention. And so they ask the obvious question. When will that be? And so Jesus sets out to answer that question. Now, they, they ask a kind of... Nuanced question in that they, they ask, When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming into the end of the age? They kind of mixed it all together because they assumed that was one thing. That's why Mark and Luke actually only have one question When is this going to be destroyed? This is the only question they record, but it's also the only answer they give. But Matthew does more. He takes their nuance and he shows the answer to both sides of that question. And so, After Jesus spends 35 verses, or take off the three where they ask the question, the rest of that, beginning of chapter 24, answering the question, when will this temple be destroyed? He then transitions to the other part of the question. He says, now, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, as for that day or hour, when the Son of Man comes, um, then he goes on to give us these four parables and to explain You have no idea when it's coming. Period. It's going to be a long time from now. And you will least expect it when it comes. Just as in the days of Noah, he goes on to say. And they didn't know that judgment was coming to sweep them all away. So it will be when judgment is coming here. It will happen as we go about our daily lives, unaware. Therefore, the implication is, how we live our lives is of the essence. That is how we are to be ready. So, Matthew 24, verse 42, we begin the first parable. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day or your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Note the emphasis, being ready. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of, his, uh, of the servants of, in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions." But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Who is the faithful and wise servant? The servant in the household, the servants represent the disciples in the church. They are not owners of the household, they are servants in the household. And they must do as Jesus taught, which is to give food at the proper time to the other servants. Specifically, they are to give food at the proper time to these servants. And in the book of Acts, chapter 6 at least, the apostles seem to have taken it literally, setting up an entire branch of the church to make sure that the widows are fed properly and that there is no favoritism based on the ethnicity of the Hebraic widows. Even if we take it figuratively, we can't escape the actual requirement of our using our possessions to care for the less fortunate. The foolish servants, who are actually called wicked, demonstrate their wickedness by self-indulgent living, the opposite of a life of love. Now, I said we're going to talk about the mystery of grace and deeds or works, if you will, in these parables. And so one might wonder in this parable, where is grace? And I will confess to you that this was the hardest one to find the grace. In the other three, it was more, much more obvious where the grace is in the parable. But it dawned on me that actually grace is not so hidden, at least not as it first seems. Um, because the very call to be ready the warning that He will return when we least expect Him to, the warning that we will be judged based on whether we are doing His will or not, well, those are all means of grace to us. Otherwise, we would go about our lives just trying to squeeze all the juice out of it that we could and think that we were okay. The, the parable itself is a summons to carry out the Lord's will, which is what we were truly made for. It rescues us from living to fill our bucket, if you will. Will we be found faithful or foolish? And that leads to the second parable, lit or unlit, I've titled it. At that time, we read beginning in chapter 25, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. You can think bridesmaids, if you will. You want to modernize it a touch. Who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. Note the similarity to the previous. And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out: "Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him!" Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, "Give us some oil. Some of your oil. Our lamps are going out." No. They replied, There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way they um, way to, to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, Open the door for us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, understanding parables can be difficult for us, especially because some of the things that would be obvious to them are not obvious to us. I mean, just as an example, weddings don't happen this way at all today. This isn't a, a like, you read this and it's like, how does that relate to a wedding? Because it, it doesn't, not in the way we do weddings at all. And, 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 well, keeping watch with lamps isn't part of our culture today. We would rather speak of surveillance cameras, security systems, and radar, and, and that kind of thing. We wouldn't think of lamps and with which to watch. And why were they watching? We live in such a safe society by comparison. You know, we don't go to bed at night thinking, okay, who's going to stay up tonight and watch? It just doesn't enter into our thinking. When we get to the end and the moral of the story is, therefore keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour, we might wonder what it has to do with the parable at all. But the whole point of the ten bridesmaids going out to meet the groom with lamps, the whole point of needing oil is to stay awake and watch so that they can escort the groom to the wedding banquet. I think I don't know the amount of ink that has been spilled trying to figure out what the oil represents. It doesn't represent anything. The oil is what keeps a lamp lit, and a lamp, lamp lit is what enables watching. That's the whole point. <laughs> and so, these, in, in, in the way they did weddings, and I described it earlier during communion, so I'll be brief here, but the, the, the fathers would come together, the, the groom would come with the father to meet the bride, and, and, and they would arrange for the agreement. The, the groom would return home to build a place on his father's land that would now be uh, an extension of that where when it's completed, he would go back and and return. Now, when he went to return, now the whole town by now is aware that this groom is going to return to receive his bride. And so when he begins to come, people begin to recognize him. Hey, the groom is here. The groom is here. The groom is here. These, These virgins, these bridesmaids have the job of greeting him when he enters the city. And When they do, they then escort him with their lights, light the path all the way to where the reception will be, the wedding and reception will be. So these ten bridesmaids go out to do it. Five of them bring extra oil. Because they expected what? That it could be a long time before he comes. They were prepared for the long haul. Five of them don't bring any extra oil. Now, the way a lamp worked at the time, the size of a lamp, it would have held about as much oil as needed to last from about the time the sun went down until about midnight. Assuming that at one point they turned down their lamps just a little bit to conserve oil as they're waiting for the groom. They are, they, they, when they awaken at midnight, because the townspeople evidently have begun shouting, the, the groom's coming, the groom's coming, he's here. They've been doing a better job watching than the, the bridesmaids themselves. Well, they turn their lights up, they ready their lamps. They trim their lamps. In other words, they say, well, let's get it up to where it is, make sure we have enough oil. Ooh, wait a minute, we're about to run out. It's been too long. Well, what if, what if the five had been so generous as to give half their oil to the five who didn't have oil? Well, then they would have all had lamps that burned out while and without finishing the job. They'd have been in the dark trying to lead the groom to where he was supposed to go. That doesn't work. So they can't do that. So they send them off to get oil. Now we could call it the parable of the ten bridesmaids sent to watch with lamps. But that is a bit long and cumbersome and nobody would want to use it. But this whole idea of watching with lamps is significant for the church. Lamps have already come up in Matthew's gospel back in chapter 5 where it says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. But keeping watch is also connected throughout the New Testament with prayer. Prayer keeps us from falling asleep and drifting into sin and darkness. To be asleep is to be unaware of the tactics of the enemy that assault the church, the people of God. Hence, we must watch and pray for all the Lord's people. For instance, in Ephesians 6.18. You see, a prayerless church will never bear witness faithfully to Christ. The lamp will never shine. And so this idea of our witness before the world requires that we watch and pray. Watch and pray over what? Over all the saints. Over how we live our lives before a watching world. That we would have the faith and the courage to live as Christ has called us to. So prayerlessness would lead to living in darkness and our lamps, our witness, going out. Hence the very reason for our existence drying up and going away. The wise virgins fell asleep also. Did, Did you notice that? I had never noticed until last week. I'm a little slow. I understand. I mean, I do this for a living. I study the Bible. You'd think I would have figured this out before now, but I hadn't. They all fell asleep. They all failed at their essential task to watch. Problem number one with watching is falling asleep. You can't watch while you are asleep. And grace is so evident because the townspeople, somebody's crying out, here comes the the groom, and wakes them all up. Thank God that God gave them grace because otherwise they would have all slept right through the whole event. We have grace from God even when we've fallen asleep. Thanks be to God. Amen? Which is good because we all have fallen asleep from time to time. That's, That's for sure. The difference came in their preparation, in their expectations, which impacted their ability to respond. You see, they knew it would be long and hard. Even though they fell asleep, when they woke up, they were prepared at least for long and hard. They were ready to endure. We see that grace in verses 6 and 7. At midnight, a cry rang out, Here comes a bride, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. That the foolish ones had not considered that his coming would be delayed. That they would have to endure. That was where the problem lay. They were disillusioned by the delay, if you will. How does this parable call us? What does it say to us? It calls us to be ready. Through it we hear the voice. hears the bridegroom come out to meet him. It it calls us to let our light shine in the world that we might also be those who escort him into the celebration. We, We may have fallen asleep, but if we were serious about following the Lord to begin with, we shake ourselves awake and rejoice that we did indeed plan for the long haul, and we get back in the game, we prepare ourselves for letting our light shine that people might see the coming bridegroom. It calls us to attend in prayer to our deeds, that we would shine light in a dark world, preparing the way for our King. And we'll talk more about how it calls us to prayer and how to pray in such a way under point four. But it calls us to attend to, in prayer to our deeds. Will we be found lit or unlit? Watching and praying, attending to our witness... Or dark, asleep. And that leads to our third heading, lavish or loathe. And this is the parable of the bags of gold. I love how the NIV translates instead of talents, bags of gold. We've heard the parable of the talents how many times in our lives? And there's a couple of problems with the, the translation talents. I mean it's a very literal translation. There are talents. I mean, there's no problem there. That's what they were. <laughs> The problem lies in the fact that there's an English word for talent, and we confuse the two, and they have nothing to do with each other. So we think the parable's all about how we use the gifts that God has given us. God bless you, that's a wonderful message. It's not what the parable's about. <laughs> but it's all about translation and the confusion that goes with that. And I mean, there's, it's a fine thing, but it's not what it's about. And the second problem with the translation talent, none of us have any idea what a talent is. I don't. It's kind of like saying a trillion dollars. Like, do you really think you know what a trillion dollars is? You don't. You can't comprehend that much money. Because it's a boatload of money. And you'll never run out. At least not until some inflation hits again. <laughs> and it might at some point. Maybe we'll all know what a trillion is. But then we'll have to change the analogy, right? Because it'll get too big. It's just an absurd amount of money. The parable of the bags of gold goes like this. And by the way, a, a talent, just for the record, is about 20 years of a laborer's wages. 20 years. So, we'll, we'll run the math on that and work it out accordingly. So, um, <clears throat> a man's going on a journey. This is in verse 14, starts of chapter 25. He entrusts his wealth to his servants. One, on one he lavishes 100 years' wages, to another 40 years' wages, and to another 20 years' wages. I if you want to make that 5 trillion, 2 trillion, and 1 trillion, or whatever, billion. I mean, pick billion if you'd prefer. Well, the point is, we don't, it's just like way more money than we can comprehend. That's the point. Anyone on his journey. The man receiving 100 years wages, assuming the generosity of his master, goes out and puts it to work. Exercising the lavish generosity that he was given, he gains 100 years worth more. Likewise, a man receiving 40 years' wages assumes the lavish generosity of his master and lavishes grace upon others, producing 40 years of wealth. Now, I am interpret-telling the story, to be be sure. But I think we need to have this interpret-telling done over and over again until we grab what it's about. However, the man upon whom was lavished 20 years' wages loathed his master's way of doing things. For some strange reason, he thought his master was stingy, always frowning on his subject, so he was stingy too and buried it. He probably went about making sure everybody did what they were supposed to. But he sure wasn't going to lavish grace on them. You likely know the rest of the story. The first two get lavishly rewarded. The last one gets treated with the same stinginess that he treated others with. But what's the meaning of the parable? Well, Remember, we have four parables about the return of Christ. I'm going to suggest to you that if you want to understand the meaning of any one of them, you have to look at them as four. Because all four of them are about the same thing, and they all say essentially the same thing from a different angle about the return of Christ. In light of that, I think it's easy to see that the bags of gold themselves represent the glorious grace of God, the forgiveness of God. You you could even call it the nonviolence of God. For instance, God has chosen not to be violent to us in His wrath because of our sin, but rather to forgive us and to be gracious to us. And then He calls us to go and do the same. To forgive, even as we've been forgiven. To freely give what we've been given freely. From Luke 7, we know... That the one who has been forgiven much loves much, and the one who has been forgiven little loves little. In this parable, the one who perceived that he received little doubted the grace of the Lord. Although he had still been given 20 years wages, there's evidently some idea that he thinks his master is stingy. Maybe it was a comparison game. I don't know. The ones who received much grace went out distributing that grace to others. They were not doing works of the law, but works of grace that flow from hearts that are rich in God's grace. But, but they are surely works. They're deeds. They're good. They're just not based on the law. They're based on the love of Christ. What is clear is this, that what one does with the lavish grace they have received dramatically impacts how they will be judged. What one does with the lavish grace they have received dramatically impacts how they will be judged. Do you see God's lavish grace on us and distribute it freely, or loathe His generosity to others? This leads to the final parable, sheep or goats. Sheep or goats. The most well-known, of course, of these, I think, is here in Matthew 25. Verse 31 through 46, we have one of the clearest descriptions of the judgment of Christ available. Arguably the only description of the judgment of Christ given to us in all of Scripture. Other texts speak of that judgment seat and even summarize what will happen. For instance, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, we read, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So that, that summarizes what's going to happen, but it doesn't tell us what it's going to look like. How is that going to take place? The only thing, place that I'm aware of, and if you can find one, please inform me because I haven't found one, that, that describes how that would take place is this parable, if you will. And I'm not sure that it can be called a parable because everything about it except the simile that like sheep and goats being placed on the right and left, it's talking about people and the king, and it's very real. It's very literal in in how it's presented. So, parable, maybe. Metaphor or simile entwined into a description, yes. Some of the above. But here's what we get. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the, the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from the other, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I'm going to pause for just a minute. If, as I proposed earlier, the four parables relate to each other in terms of different facets of the same thing, When he gathers his people and separates the sheep from the goats, he turns to those on the right. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you. If I look at the previous bag of gold parable, these are the ones who have received all this that was given to them, right? And now they're going to find out what they did with it. Well, here's where we see what was supposed to be done with it. This is how it is multiplied, okay? Okay, so back into the text, verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Notice how they are lavishing grace on others. They're not stingy. Now, this is followed by the same iteration to those on the left, except that they did not do. They, in turn, ask when they didn't do that, and are likewise told that whatever they did not do for the least, they did not do for him. You see, their response is merely a negation of the first groups. Whereas the first group had not been keeping track of deeds done as if it were some kind of tally to earn rewards and therefore did not realize what they had actually done. They were just living in God's lavish grace. They weren't keeping track of what they were doing as if it was somehow meritorious of something. They are just living in that grace. But the second group was keeping a tally. They were incredulous. When did, you see, when did we see you hungry and not feed you? Or thirsty and not give you something to drink? Or a stranger? Or sick? Or naked? Or in prison? <laughs> Almost a, uh, how dare you accuse us of not doing it? It's as if they were keeping track, as if it were meritorious. You aren't going to call us into question. apparently they did well in all but the most insignificant moments the least which they either thought that they got away with or more likely they didn't even notice had happened they were so insignificant the people involved that surely we that's not something we're called to do but in those there was christ He evidently wasn't in all the ones that they did to be seen by others or to keep track of for their own tally. What is evident here is that Christ will indeed judge us based both on what we do and what we fail to do. But don't confuse that with being meritorious as if that somehow earns salvation. The minute we start keeping a tally, we're on the wrong side of it. We've missed the grace of God. Preaching in the mid-third century, so about the 250s A.D., during a severe outbreak that occurred in that decade of the plague, Cyprian said this in his preaching, It is crucially important that Christians treat desperately ill people by providing practical help, such as entering the houses of sick people, touching them feeding them bread and giving them water and loving them even when they are outside the Christian community, even when Christians view them as persecutors and enemies. And that when they are doing this, quote, they are doing more than the pagans who love only their own friends and family. To the question, why? Why should believers do this? Why risk infection? He answers this way, because God is generous and acts generously, and God wants his children to imitate him. You see, he, he had been given a hundred years' wages, and he saw how ridiculously lavish God's grace was, and wanted the people of God to act the same way. Now, living this way also influenced how the early church prayed. Thinking this way influenced how they prayed. Their prayers were often rooted in the teachings of Jesus. Now, we find samples that would lead us to, to, to maybe to, to do this. I'm going to make it a little more full with the parable we just read. But one might use the parable of the sheep and goats in prayer, something like this. Lord, when we see the hungry, help us to see them as you see them, that we might give them something to eat. When we see the thirsty, help us to see them as you see them, that we might give them something to drink. When we see a stranger, show us how to invite them into our lives. And the naked, that we might clothe them. Help us to care for the sick, despite what it might cost us, to visit those in prison, both those who are there justly and unjustly. Those who have been falsely put there, help us to bring them hope. Those who have been justly put there, help us to show mercy as we have been shown mercy. See, that is watching... And praying for all God's people. So that we would not walk in darkness, but in the light. Amen? See, the early church understood that living in obedience to Jesus was essential to our witness. It's not meritorious. It's essential to our witness, our very reason for existence. To, to being a light in the world. To letting our light shine. And they also understood our tendency to slumber. Maybe you're aware of that too. I am. <laughs> We, we do have this tendency to slumber, to fall asleep and not take up our calling to live this way. So we need the, the grace that the five wise, quote-unquote, bridesmaids were given. Wake up! <laughs> oh yeah, that's right, we're, we've got a job to do. Let's wake up. We have a job to do, amen? amen. What is the goal of my life? What is important to do before I die? Is it to squeeze all the juice out of it that I can? To indulge myself in all I want to do? Or to faithfully love others as Christ did? To be ready with our lamps lit, watching in prayer? Or to be lavishing the lavish grace of God on others which we have received? I think it's to be, as it were, sheep who have fed, given drink to, clothed, welcomed in, and visited the least of Jesus' household. In these four parables, as I noted at the beginning, everything said about Christ's return makes a claim on how we live today. And at its core, it's about our witness in in this world. Being a faithful gospel witness is about more than having the right gospel. that's our mission statement. Be a faithful gospel witness for this generation and the next. But it's about more than having the right gospel. It does include that, to be sure. It also means living that gospel. Now, as with the ten bridesmaids, we hear the call. And are we ready to have our light shining? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be ready. That is fundamentally the call of these verses to, to be faithful as your servants, to have our lights shining, our lamps burning, which is our witness, to put the lavish grace of God that we've received to work to lavish that grace on the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the sick, those in prison, the naked. Lord, help us to lavish grace on all we meet, the least of these. And and let us do it without having to identify them so that we know we're doing it, but rather let us just be so conscious of your grace to us that it overflows without our even thinking about it. That our hearts are bent to love the least of these. In Jesus' name, amen.